0: I would invite you this morning to take your copy of God's Word and open it again to the same place we were last week, Mark's Gospel, Chapter 1. If you're using uh, one of the black Bibles under a seat in front of you, you'll find Mark Chapter 1 on page 785 of that little black Bible. Uh, If you're using a smartphone or a tablet, I don't know where it is, you'll find your way there. Uh, If you're not familiar with making your way around the Bible, uh, the large numbers on the pages are the chapter numbers and the small superscripted numbers are the verses and so today we're going to be in mark chapter 1 verses 9 through 13 uh hopefully uh mark being a relatively short gospel these verses are probably all on the same page in your bible that they were last week Uh, you might want to even just stick a bookmark in there uh to make your finding of our passages week to week a little bit easier mark chapter 1 verses 9 through 13 Uh, my guess is that most of you at some point or another in your life have played with shadow puppets or even learned to make a few. I know how to do three. I will not tell you what they are because then you'll ask me to do them and then you'll judge me on how poorly I execute them. But shadow puppets are fun because they they pretend to make an image of something else in the real world using just your hands. But shadow puppets are always a little bit disappointing, even even the very best of them, because they're never quite as good as the real thing, even the shadow cast by the real thing. Even shadows cast by other objects are still not really as satisfying as seeing the object for yourself. A shadow puppet of a dog may look dog-like. But it's really not a dog. You you turn away from the shadow to see where it's coming from, and it's just my grubby old hand making some silly shapes. But the shadow of an actual dog, the shadow of Barney cast upon the sidewalk on our morning walks, the shadow is never quite as clear even as the, the real subject casting it. The shadow of the thing never communicates as much about its subject as we really need to understand the dog itself. But because there is a shadow, we know to look for a dog. We know that if there is a shadow, we can follow it to its source, and then we can see in in all of its detail, the color of its eyes, the shape of its ears, the overall status of its dental health. And where we see a dog in in the bright light of the sun, we also know that he's going to cast a shadow. And so shadows and subjects work in both directions. The shadow, though, always something less than the substance that is casting it. And so it is in Scripture too. All throughout the Old Testament... We're finding shadows cast all over its literary landscape. The shadow is longer here and shorter there. It's clearer here and fuzzier there, but we find it all over the place. The shadow that is cast all over the Old Testament sometimes looks like one of rescue, one of redemption, a shadow of righteousness, a shadow of a king not yet born, shadow of a, de- a deliverance that has not yet been known. The substance of these shadows the one that is casting his silhouette all across the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, we know from our perspective in history and in God's revelation, we know that the subject casting a shadow is Christ, is Jesus. And in Jesus' life, in many ways, he shows us in stark reality and and clear detail all of the detail behind the shadows that we had been looking for so long or looking at so long. One of the shadows that is cast is by Jesus over the Old Testament is the shadow of a son. Sometimes that shadow is seen in the person of Isaac, Abraham's son. Sometimes that shadow of a son is seen in David's offspring, a, a king who would reign forever that hasn't quite come yet, but what we see is still in some way through the prophets on the horizon. Sometimes that shadow of a son is seen even in the first son of God, Adam, the first man created in the image of God, set and placed in the Garden of Eden. And sometimes that shadow of a son is is cast in the people of Israel themselves. This morning, as we come to Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, we get to see the substance of that shadow of a sun, In clear detail, bright and easy to see in all of its glory, Jesus the Christ. In Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, we, we see that Jesus comes from Nazareth, goes to the Jordan where John was, and is baptized by John the baptizer. And that, after being baptized, he is tempted in the wilderness, in a way baptized and tempted in the wilderness in a way that demonstrates that he is the true and divine Son of God here 's the main idea of our text this morning in mark chapter one, verses nine through thirteen, that Jesus is the true and better Son of God that 's what Mark is telling us this morning: Jesus is the true and better Son of God. Now, as we see this idea illustrated and, and unfolded in mark 's gospel. I want two things for you this morning. Number one, I want for you to know for certain that Jesus is the perfect and divine Son of God who never failed and never sinned. I want you to know that. Come away with that information tucked away in your brain. And then number two, to find yourself not just knowing who Jesus is, but to find yourself united to Jesus. Held fast by the Son of God for your rescue from sin and spiritual rebellion. Find yourself in relationship with this Son today. Yeah, I would ask you, as you're comfortably able to stand, as we honor God, reading His Word, Mark 1, verses 9 through 13. Follow along in your copies. You can read on the screen. Here's what Mark says writes in his Gospel. He writes In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Mark is writing in this event in Jesus' life to tell us that Jesus is the true and better son of God. Now, as we walk through this text, these five verses this morning, I think it will be most helpful for us to ask two questions of this text. First of all, what happened in the water and the wilderness? And second of all, what's so important about sonship, water, and wilderness? So first, let's ask the question, what happened in the water and the wilderness? What's going on in these verses that are here before us in Mark's gospel? The first angle that we take here at, at, at looking at these verses in Mark simply leads us to understand the plain meaning of the text right in front of us. What, is, what, what it is that Mark is emphasizing for us, what he wants for us to key in on. Uh, Ken Steffen, one of our, our uh, grow group leaders and, and, deacon candidate is always really helpful when he's leading Bible studies to tell those that he's leading. Don't pay a, Try not to pay so close attention to the little subtitles and breaks in your Bible. Like in mine before verse nine, it says the baptism of Jesus before verse 12, it says the temptation of Jesus. And that might lead us to see these as two distinct events. But I think the way that Mark is writing, he wants to see the baptism and the tempting of Jesus all together as one unit. So what is Mark emphasizing for us in these five verses? Well, I think something of his emphasis comes through in the way that he phrases these events, in the way that that he he talks about how these things took place. I wonder if you can follow the progression here with me. In verse 9, Jesus comes out of the obscure town of Nazareth, a backwater town in the backwoods place of Galilee, to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Then in verse 10, we see as Jesus is baptized the Holy Spirit of God descends on him uh, like a dove, Mark says. Then in verse 11, we get a voice from heaven, the voice of God the Father saying, uh, saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Then in verse uh, 12, we go back to an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. So we go from obscurity to Holy Spirit, to a focus on the Father, back to what the Holy Spirit does. And the Holy Spirit is thrusting Jesus out into the wilderness, where in verse 13, we find he's there in an obscure place in the wilderness where nobody else is, Him him and Satan and the wild animals and some angels. So we go from obscurity to spirit movement to the Father's voice to spirit movement to obscurity again. And Mark structures these verses this way to draw us to verse 11. The declaration of God the Father at Jesus' baptism. Behold, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So let's look at each of those events, each of those parts of that progression in order. First of all, we see Jesus was baptized. That's what Mark is telling us. First of all, Jesus was baptized. It's interesting that Mark gives us so very little detail about Jesus' baptism. Uh, we get a lot more detail in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel, to be sure. But Mark, remember, is an action-oriented gospel writer. He is trying to get us through the events of Jesus' life in as, in as sort of colorful but quick a fashion as he can. The big question in, in, in all of this, I think in verse 9, at least it was for me over the last several days as I was studying and preparing, is this. Why did Jesus have to be baptized? You ever ask that, yourself that question? Why did Jesus have to be baptized? Mark doesn't tell us in his gospel. Thanks so much, Mark. But in Matthew's gospel, we get a hint to the reason as to why Jesus needed to be baptized. In Matthew's gospel in chapter three, the, Matthew tells the same, the same story. He records the same event. Jesus comes to John and tells John, you need to baptize me. And John says, are you kidding me? I need to be baptized by you and you come to be baptized by me. And in Mark uh, Matthew chapter three, verse 15, Jesus says to John, the baptizer, let it be so for now, because it is fitting for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So something about Jesus's baptism, the reason for his baptism is to fulfill all righteousness. Now, certainly we know that Jesus had no sins to confess or to repent of. In the way that John was inviting people to be baptized, he, he was telling them to prepare themselves for the coming Messiah by confessing their sins to God and demonstrating the, their, their, their appeal to God for a clean conscience and forgiveness of sins by being washed in the water of the Jordan River. But Jesus has no sins to confess, so surely his baptism can't be about confession of sin. Neither is Jesus' baptism, the reason for his baptism, so simple, I don't think, as Jesus just giving his approval to John's message. Like, hey John, I think you're doing a good job, why don't you dunk me too? That doesn't seem to make sense. John, all the way along, is pointing to Jesus as the one who is greater, as the one who must increase, and he must decrease. So why, why would it be necessary for Jesus to go to John and puff up John and say, hey, good job, everybody, look at what John's doing? That's not his role either. Neither is Jesus even demonstrating in his baptism that he identifies with sinners who confess and repent of their sins, although Jesus certainly does identify with sinners who confess and repent of their sins. It seems rather, I think, that Jesus' baptism is not a baptism of confession and repentance, and it's not just a, 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 a baptism of appro- that gives approval to John's message or identifies himself with other people, nor is Jesus' baptism even just a good example for us to follow. If any of the options, that's probably the worst. Certainly though Jesus does give us commands as His followers to be baptized, it seems that Jesus' baptism is something altogether different. It seems that his baptism is something of a consecration, something of an anointing for ministry, something of a, a, a christening event, if you will, a, a dedication, a, 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 a recognition that Jesus is going to do, going to be and do things that are impossible and unlikely. Here we have in this baptismal scene the last Old Covenant prophet, John, whose job it is to point to the Messiah who's coming after him. In baptizing Jesus the Christ, John is willingly demonstrating the transition of God's work through prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Covenant, now to the only perfect priest-king, Jesus. John is saying, the old is gone, the new has come. Here's the one, look at Him. Righteousness, God's perfect plan to redeem sinners, to rescue sinners from their sin, is coming to all of its fruition in Jesus, and His baptism is demonstrating that. So Jesus goes to the Jordan to be baptized, not to be forgiven of sins, but to demonstrate and and, and to be shown that He is the Christ, the Messiah, who's come to deliver God's people. We see in verse 10, again, just looking at what happened in the water in the wilderness, that after His baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus. Right after his baptism, immediately, Mark says... Now, if you know much about Mark's gospel, you know that immediately is his favorite transition word. He uses it like 40 times in 15 chapters. It's all over the place. When uh, we were meeting as a staff together earlier in the year, and I was uh, telling uh, Pastor Danny and Becky and Joel that we were going to be working in a series in Mark, Uh, Becky teased me a little bit, and she said, are you going to title the series immediately? And for a second, I thought about it. Immediately. Mark says, upon coming up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends, or, uh, sorry, let me clarify. When Jesus comes up out of the water, he sees heaven ripped open and the Holy Spirit descending as a dove. Now, Mark doesn't say that John saw this. Mark doesn't say that the people who were standing around Jesus saw this. Mark says that Jesus saw this. As Jesus comes up out of the water, he sees heaven torn open and the Spirit of God descending on him in the manner of of a dove now i don't know how mark knows that this is what jesus saw i don't it doesn't seem that john or other witnesses to this baptism saw the same thing so maybe jesus told it to his disciples later on and they passed it down and mark uh, mark notes this detail for us maybe jesus said something aloud uh in regard to what he saw uh happening around him and and that was taken in by those who are watching and they're going oh my goodness what is he saying this is important But either way, Jesus sees heaven torn open, the Holy Spirit of God descending on him as a dove. Now, this does not mean that the Holy Spirit is a dove or that the Holy Spirit descended even in the form of a dove. Although you often see in, in Christian uh, iconography and artwork throughout the centuries, the Holy Spirit is often depicted as a dove, in part because of this passage. But I think what Mark means is something about the way that the Holy Spirit came, appeared like a dove, like a, like a dove would fl- flittering and fluttering its wings as it lights upon a branch to take a rest, something like that. One of the first readers of Mark May have or first hearers of this gospel may have on on reading this or hearing about this instance of the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus may have thought about the servant song from the prophet Isaiah seven hundred years before when the Lord said through Isaiah the prophet about uh, spoke to him about a servant king who would come to redeem God's people God said through Isaiah about his servant in Isaiah forty two one behold my servant Whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So Jesus goes down to the Jordan. He's baptized and the spirit descends upon him. And then the climax, the highlight, the emphasis of this entire passage, the Father speaks. God, the Father's voice, is heard. Now this is not just verse 11, not just the middle verse in our passage today, Verse 11, the words from the Father, the affirmation of who Jesus is from the Father in heaven is the theological centerpiece of this passage. It's what Mark wants us to key in on most here. Remember how Mark started his gospel? I hope you do remember it well because we just saw it last week. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or we could even say Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Mark, we said last week, his whole purpose in writing this biography of Jesus is for us to know that Jesus is God's promised Christ and that Jesus is the divine Son of God. And what is it that the Father speaks over Jesus as the Spirit comes and rests upon him? This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. The very first evidence of Jesus being the Christ, of being the Messiah, that promised servant King, was that he was preceded by John, the baptizer, that prophesied preparer. We saw that last week. The first evidence, though, that Jesus is the Son of God, these are the twin aims of Mark, that we would see Jesus as the Christ and Jesus as the Son of God. We've seen one evidence to Jesus' uh, messiahship, his Christness, in that he is preceded by the right preparer. And now we have the first evidence of his sonship of God in a declaration from no less than the Father himself. It is very important for us to understand that in His baptism, Jesus does not become God's Son. He doesn't go from not being God's Son to being God's Son at His baptism. Jesus has always been the Son of God. There was never a moment in eternity past when God was and the Son and the Spirit were not. Jesus is not one God among three, and neither is the one God absent from heaven but present on earth in Jesus here. We confess today, as Christians have for centuries, that God is eternally Father, Son, and Spirit. One being in three persons. And if that's confusing, I don't blame you. There's nothing in human experience to compare the existence of God to. I am one being and one person. Now I have lots of different roles. I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a pastor. Uh, Sometimes I'm a groundskeeper at my home. Lots of different roles in my life, but I'm not lots of different people. I'm not multiple different persons. Every human being is one person and one being, but God is one being in three persons. This is the mystery of the Trinity, as we have confessed as as Orthodox, as right believing Christians for centuries. Last week we visited just briefly what the Nicene Creed, an early summary of convictional beliefs about who God is and how salvation comes from the early 300s A.D., about 1,700 years ago. I want to remind us this morning of another creed that came from the same century, although a little bit later, the Athanasian Creed, attributed to the church father, Athanasius. The Athanasian Creed is a, a longer creed. It's a, it's a, I don't know, it's a lot of words, it's hard to memorize, but its focus and its subject is on unfolding this wonderful, beautiful doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Listen to how the Athanasian Creed describes, just briefly at the early part, at its outset, how it describes what we believe here. It says, We worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons, nor dividing the divine being. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal." The majesty, co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father, uncreated. The Son, uncreated. The Holy Spirit, uncreated. The Father, unlimited. The Son, unlimited. The Holy Ghost, unlimited. The Father, eternal. The Son, eternal. The Holy Spirit, eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. Amen. Friends, here we have at the center of this passage in Mark's Gospel what we are meant to understand most clearly that jesus is the divine son of god in human flesh empowered and anointed by god the spirit affirmed by god the father if you had any doubt about what mark wants us to know about who jesus is in his gospel i hope that doubt is well removed by this point this is the beginning of the gospel of jesus the christ the son of god not just a godly man but the divine person of God the Son in human flesh among us. Look at him. So Jesus goes to be baptized. The Spirit descends upon him. The Father speaks at the climax of this passage. And then, in verse 12, we see the Holy Spirit compelling Jesus into the wilderness. So the Holy Spirit descends, the Father speaks, and then the Holy Spirit comes in again. The focus is back to the Spirit's activity. Now he is the Holy Spirit is not just descending on jesus but now the holy spirit is driving jesus compelling jesus impelling jesus throwing him out into the wilderness the holy spirit is vitally active in jesus's life and ministry and we would expect it to be so if the holy spirit is god as jesus is god that they would be working together that the spirit would be working through jesus Now, if you read Luke's gospel or the book of Acts, which is an early history of, of uh, of the early church, you'll find that Luke highlights the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus and his disciples all over the place. But Luke isn't the only one that emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit. Mark does too. Maybe not as much as Luke does, but Mark does it also. The Holy Spirit that descended on Jesus and compelled, impelled, thrust Jesus out into the wilderness is the same Holy Spirit that we resist when we deny the gospel, Jesus says in Mark 3.29. This Holy Spirit of God is the Spirit who inspired, who carried along the Old Testament writers, so that they would rightly record God's words for His people in Mark 12.36. We see that it's the Holy Spirit who gives believers words of truth and grace to speak when they are persecuted, Mark thirteen eleven, And it is, again, the same Holy Spirit of God that is thrusting Jesus back out into this obscure place, the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness that the Holy Spirit threw him into, thrust him into, where finally, in verse 13, Jesus is tempted. Tempted by Satan, and he overcomes. Now, again, Mark gives us Very few details about this tempting. Again, he's just trying to move along, hit the high points, get you to know who Jesus is. But Matthew and Luke each give us a little bit more detail about those 40 days that Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted. There in that Judean desert, Satan resorts to his age-old trick from even the Garden of Eden, tempting his subject to distrust God's trustworthiness. Satan, the serpent, would say in the garden to Adam and Eve, did God really say... If you eat from that tree, you'll surely die. Listen, you won't surely die. God's just upset that if you eat from the tree, you'll be like him, knowing what he knows. And, and, and God, is he's not for you. He's against you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to know what he knows. How can you trust a God like that? And so Adam and Eve eat. And so fall into sin and bring sin into the world. As Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4 both record, Satan resorts to the same tactics in the wilderness, not with the first Adam, but the second Adam. And he says to Jesus, taking God's word out of context, putting words into the mouth of God, he says effectively to Jesus, surely if you are the Son of God, if you are the the eternal God, the Son in human flesh, you can make bread out of these stones, man. You've been here 40 days. You hungry. You hangry. You can make bread out of these stones. You spoke the world into existence. You hold it all together by the word of your power. If you're hungry, make yourself something to eat. Surely you can do that, Son of God. And surely, as a Son of God, you can can throw yourself off of a cliff or off of a high point of the temple and you could call on on myriads of angels to come and lift you up so that you won't be hurt. And and show you as the king that you really are. You can demonstrate all of your divine capacity and power simply by risking your life and calling the angels to save you. Then everyone will know who you are, right? Son of God. Satan says to Jesus, I'll tell you what, I'll give you one more. If you just fall down and worship me, I'll give you everything your heart desires. I've got authority in this world to give you money, fame, power, women, whatever you want. It's all yours. Just worship me satan says and at every point that jesus is tempted in the wilderness time and again he responds to the tempter not by giving in but by holding fast and what does he do to hold fast what does he use to hold fast the word of god itself when he is tempted jesus says to the serpent listen god has said that his word is better than bread so i'll fill up on that thank you very much God has said that His faithfulness and His care are not to be despised, so I'm going to trust Him, not test Him. He has said that God alone is worthy of worship, and to fall down before any other is idolatry, and a sin of the gravest sort. So no way, tempter be gone. My, the glory belongs to the Father. Amen. Jesus is baptized, the Spirit descends, the Father speaks His pleasure of the Son. Jesus is thrown by the Spirit into the wilderness and then He resists temptation. Verse 11, the point of this passage. Behold, this is my beloved Son, God says, with Him I am well pleased. The question is why? Why is God so pleased with Jesus, His Son? Why does God find pleasure in His divine Son at His baptism and in His resistance is successful resistance to temptation in the wilderness but well, to answer that question i think we need to ask a second one in, in order to see what john is saying to us in the picture of these five verses we need to look at the picture behind the picture we, we need to look at the, the scene behind the scene in front of us that lights up and glorifies and shows in resplendent detail a deeper and fuller and more beautiful message than we could ever comprehend if we fail to ask this next question. And that question is this. What is Mark saying? Not just about what happened in the water in the wilderness, but what is Mark saying through these themes of sonship, water, and wilderness? Sonship, water, and and wilderness. I hope at this point, some of you who are familiar with the Bible are beginning to track with Mark's picture here. I hope some of you are beginning to see the picture behind the picture. And when we say those words out loud, sonship, water, wilderness, that you're beginning to connect a thread that runs in a bold line from the Exodus in Egypt to the Jordan River and the Judean desert. Mark is saying to believers in these five verses that Jesus is the substance of so many Old Testament shadows. That the promised land of Canaan is not the ultimate destination for God's people through the Red Sea, but that Jesus is the destination. Mark is saying to those who read his biography of Jesus that Jesus is the true and better Israel, the true and better Son of God who does for us and is what we could never do for ourselves or ever be on our own. Follow with me for a moment. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. We're going back in the Bible a long ways, I know. Stick with me. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Before ever God sends plagues upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians in order to demonstrate his power over them so that, they might, so that, so that Pharaoh might let his people go. In Exodus 4, 22, God says to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And so it is in Exodus that after a series of judgments, plagues upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt that the people are eventually set free. Pharaoh finally gives in. And so they gladly leave Egypt until they come to the Red Sea. They come to the shore of this massive body of water that they cannot cross on their own. But now by this time, Pharaoh has changed his mind. And he thought, you know what? I rather liked having those slaves in my land. I think I'll go get them back. So he sends his army to go after the Hebrews who have just exited. And so now the Hebrews find themselves with an impassable body of water in front of them and an unconquerable army behind them. And it's at this point of impossibility that God intervenes and through His power mightily parts the Red Sea so that the Hebrews are able to walk through on dry ground. God's people whom he just delivered from his wrath against Egypt by the blood of a lamb sacrificed for the household. He now carries them through the waters of the Red Sea. And once they are safely through on the other side, he allows Pharaoh and his army to go and and pass on through behind them. And as they are there in between those waters, waters parted, what happens? The floods come crashing in upon Pharaoh and his armies. The Israelites are delivered safely through on dry ground, but the water comes crashing down in God's judgment on Pharaoh's army as they try to follow after. And so the Red Sea becomes a picture in the Old Testament, a shadow in the Old Testament of God's deliverance for his son, but also his judgment upon their enemies. Water, a picture of washing and deliverance, of of freedom and, and at the same time, judgment that follows. So it is then, free from Egypt, through the Red Sea, that Israel goes where? The wilderness. And it's in the wilderness that they receive God's word at the foot of Mount Sinai. But then almost immediately as they receive God's word, they fail to keep it. They grumble against God's provision. They curse their leader, Moses. They make a golden calf to worship as an idol of God. The wilderness is where God takes His firstborn son delivered out of Obscurity and slavery in Egypt, the people of Israel, to make them a people for his own possession, as Exodus 19 tells us, a holy nation and a royal priesthood. But it's also the place where Israel sins most spectacularly. This place of formation, the wilderness, becomes for Israel a pit of failure. Then 1,500 years pass, and Jesus arrives on the scene. Here is a Jew in Jesus, an Israelite, long descended. From the delivered slaves. And he comes out of no place, too. He comes out of Nazareth in the backwoods, a place that nobody cares about, without the least bit of attention given to him just yet. Though Mark tells us that Jesus ain't no nobody, he's the Son of God, so pay attention to what he does. And when Jesus arrives at the bank of a body of water, that symbol of washing and also of judgment, this Son of God passes through the water, too. But this Son of God doesn't pass through on dry ground, does he? No, this son goes under and he comes out wet. A picture of what he will accomplish at the cross. That that this son of God will undergo all of the punishment, all of God's righteous wrath against sin in himself. He goes under and comes up soaked. And in him coming up wet from the water of God's washing and judgment, he makes a clear path of deliverance through God's holy justice against our sin. Jesus passes through wet so that we can pass through dry And Jesus doesn't do this by avoiding God's wrath or finding an end around God's wrath or another route around that red sea of our sin and God's judgment. No, He finds us, He makes us a path through by absorbing all of it in Himself. This Holy Spirit-driven Son of God is then thrown, thrust into the wilderness. We've seen that picture. That place that was meant for glorious formation but was fraught with great failure. And there in the wilderness, He is met with temptation too and not mind you merely the temptation of sinful other people or of a sinful heart he certainly doesn't have one of those but he's met with a temptation with temptation from the tempter himself that old serpent who caused one Son of God to fall in the garden, now here in the wilderness levels his gaze and swings against this, the divine Son of God. And where Israel failed in the face of God's Word and His command for 40 years, Jesus, the true and better Son, for 40 days resists that ancient dragon with the wonderful, sweet, satisfying words of God. Do you follow? Yeah, amen. So what is Mark saying through these themes of sonship? water, and wilderness. He's saying, dear friend, Jesus is the true and better Son of God. Israel is the shadow and Jesus is the substance. Israel was the signpost. Jesus is the destination. The Red Sea was the prologue. The empty tomb is the climax. The wilderness for Israel was a mirror to see their sin, but the wilderness for Jesus is the magnifier of His righteousness. Amen? Amen. Jesus the Christ God is showing us is the true and better Son of God. Divinity wrapped up in humanity as God with us who takes upon his sinless self all the wrath of God to satisfy his justice and comes up from the water of judgment wet so that we can pass safely through on dry ground. The Son of God makes a path of deliverance for us, cleansing us with his own blood shed for us. So that we can walk on through to become a people for his own possession. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. Language that was used in Exodus 19 for God's covenant people Israel. Exact same language that's used by Peter the Apostle to speak about the church of those who trust Jesus. Those who have been bought by his blood. Washed in his word. Mark is saying in no uncertain terms, Jesus is the substance of the shadow that was cast in the people of Israel. He's the more detailed, the clearer, the better thing that we're meant to see. He's the true and better Son of God. And because this is absolutely clear, not just in Mark's Gospel, but in the the eyes and in the minds uh, uh, of all the first Christians, because Jesus is the true and better Son of God, and He is convinced of it, Paul the Apostle can write in Romans 5, 18 and 19, Therefore is one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. Adam's sin in the garden. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Because Jesus is the true and better Son of God. Because Jesus is the true and better Israel, the true and better Son of God. The author of Hebrews can say in Hebrews two seventeen and 18, That Therefore he, Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to make atonement for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted because Jesus is the better and true Son of God, because He went through the flood of God's justice against our sin, coming up wet so that we can walk through dry. The Apostle Peter can declare with all confidence in 1 Peter 3.18 that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. My dear friends, Mark has not written these words. And I don't stand before you to deliver you five tips for a happier Monday. Mark has written, and I'm here to declare to you that this Jesus what you can, uh, this Jesus is what you can never be. He is without doubt the perfect, divine, righteous, sinless Son of God. And that this Jesus has done what you can never do stand in the face and the flood of God's righteous justice and come up breathing. And Mark is writing, and I'm here to tell you and to remind myself that this is good news. This is gospel for us because Jesus is and does what we can never be or do so that we might walk on the dry ground of His deliverance into the presence and grace of God, our Maker. There are some texts of Scripture that that help us to know how to walk in obedience tomorrow. There are lots of texts of Scripture that tell us to sit down, shut up, and look at Jesus. This is one of them. Friend, if you don't know this Jesus yet, He lives today. And the same Holy Spirit we see in Mark's Gospel, falling on Jesus, thrusting Him into the wilderness, that same Holy Spirit is calling to you through these Scriptures to find forgiveness of sin, to find spiritual wholeness, To find grace in abundance in Christ Jesus. Friend, if you fear God's justice against your sin, and rightly so, find confidence this morning in the promise of Scripture that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 Find yourself hidden in Christ today. Find yourself by faith in Jesus through repentance of your sin and trust in Him. Find yourself brought safely through to God's glorious presence by turning from sin Trusting Christ, putting your life in the hands of the true and better Son of God. There's no one like Him. Christian, if you didn't come ready to worship Jesus this morning, let this beautiful reality of the identity of Christ, the true and better Israel, the true and better Son of God, let that reality stoke the flame of your praise today. Glory in this truth. Glory in this truth that God has sent His Son to bring you safely home from slavery to sin to the promise of His presence. Look on the Son. And worship Christ, the true and better Israel. Precious Son and faithful head, who would walk through floods of judgment, all for sinners in their stead. See the Father's boundless pleasure in his promised servant, King, holding fast to only Christ, his sons and daughters shall we be. Amen, amen, from beginning to end. Christ is the story. His is the glory. Hallelujah. Praise God. Amen. Amen. If you don't know Him, look on Him and love Him. If you know Him, fall at His feet and worship Him. Jesus, the true and better Son of God. Friend, if you need to respond to this gospel through obedience and faith in Christ, do it this morning. We'll have a benediction in a moment. We'll have a, a passing period before we go to our Bible study groups. But I'll be here. Let's talk this morning about how you can know this better son, this one who did for you what you could never do for yourself to bring you safely home to God, your maker. Let's pray together.